I'm Shreen Patek, and this is Starting Out. Digiday's newest podcast, where I take the personal route with the movers and shakers in the marketing industry to find out their story, how they became the leaders they are today, and what their special power is that makes their craft so remarkable. Um, well, I was the editor-in-chief of the local English-language newspaper, which uh, was called the Brazil Herald, and it was a daily newspaper uh, that uh, had a circulation of about 40,000. And we served um, the, the Anglo-Saxon or English-speaking um, expat community. And now, it was during a military dictatorship. The country was run by a junta, and we were under strict censorship. Um, and I was... Um, most all the uh, Brazilian, uh, the Portuguese language newspapers like O Estado de São Paulo, Globo, or Jornal do Brasil, uh, were literally under direct censorship. So there were censors that sat in the newsroom and told the editors, "No, you can't publish this. You can publish that." But none of the censors really spoke any English. So I was the um, I was the the, the censor. Uh, you know, they would call me in the morning and they would tell me what I could report on and not report on. On today's show, Eric Hippo, managing partner of Lair Hippo Ventures. When you look at your options while thinking about investing, the smallest details can do the trick and make you say yes. When Eric invests in companies, he looks beyond ideas that seem perfect on paper and evaluates if the teams are experientially and educationally diverse. That's because for him, it's very personal. Recognizing value and diversity started from the day he was born. Born in France, Eric spent many years in Switzerland, the UK, and Brazil before he came to America. But it all started with Coronation Street and a thick Cockney accent. I basically adapted, said, okay, now... In Switzerland, I moved to the French part of Switzerland, so I didn't have to speak German. I didn't have to learn German. Uh, but yes, when I moved to the UK, um, I didn't know English at all. And uh, so I had to do a crash course in learning English. And the best way to do it was to watch television. What did uh, you watch? Um, well, there, there was a, uh, it might still exist. There, there was a long-standing um, a series called Coronation Street. Oh, of course. Um, yes. So I, I actually, my first English was with, I had a bit of a, uh, Cockney accent, uh, because in Coronation Street it's kind of you know uh, lower class or working class people, and they speak with a Cockney accent. So that's I thought that's the way you speak English. How, <laughs> how did that go down when you you know got to school? Or well, you... in school they 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 reminded me that that's not the, the you know the, the proper, the, proper uh, the Queen's English. So I, then <laughs> then I, I I did the more formal part and learned to speak English correctly with a British accent. Ah, okay. And and can you still put it on sometimes when needed? Uh, a little bit. You know, stiff upper lip, I say, or chap. Ah, see, there you go. <laughs> Do you... Um I think that the idea of sort of being, you know, a global citizen or at least being like code switching, I mean, either whether it's through accents or languages, um, it's just become, like I said, a super important skill. How do you think about, I mean, you know, you meet so many younger companies, people who are trying to start things, trying to start entrepreneurs. Um, is that something you're, you feel uh, an affinity, to, affinity towards when you meet somebody who has traveled, when you meet somebody whose background is sort of has that interesting, is that something you think about as you're meeting all of these younger companies, as you're meeting startups, founders? people are trying to do something oh absolutely the, the the most important part of the decision uh, that we have to make in terms of whether to invest or not with a new team is their background and who they are i mean the obviously the idea has to resonate the idea has to appeal to us um, and we have to feel that the timing for that idea is the right timing but but once we've gone through this discussion and said, okay, let's pursue it. The, the really where we spend the great majority of our time is on the, the background of the team. And I think that about half 
at least half of our companies have one founder who was not born in the United States. Uh, so to try to understand, you know, what what's in their background and what motivates them and and why why do they think they can do this and what um, personal attributes do they bring to the equation? You know, what's going to make them really successful? Um, and, and so trying to imagine <coughs> their upbringing and uh, you know growing up in whatever part of the world um, is is really important to us and uh, and we embrace uh, that kind of diversity. We think that it's really important uh, that. Um, that you know our companies be very inclusive we also have a good number of women founders now it's not yet up to 50 percent but um but you know we're looking for people who have different life experiences that as when they complement each other in a team will make the team so much more powerful can you give me an earlier example of one of your early investments who sort of had you know one of those worldviews that you said okay yes we want that global Point of view. Tell me a story about well, the, the, you know the, the very first investment uh, that I did professionally was Yahoo, um, and Yahoo the you know the team was Jerry Yang uh, who was born in Taiwan and brought to the United States uh, when I think he was about six years old, but you know came from a, uh, a, a kind of a Asian Taiwanese uh, Chinese upbringing, and they, David Philo who was born in the United States. Um, and and the company always always had a global view. You know, Yahoo. Uh, we we started Yahoo Japan very quickly, and then there, there was Yahoo in Europe, and there was Yahoo in Asia. And so um, I I'm pretty sure that without um, without the sensitivities of Jerry, we wouldn't have gone internationally that quickly and wouldn't have been that successful. Hmm. Do you? Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of the rest of the industry. I mean, do you think that you and uh, and the company are unique in sort of making sure that you that you are looking for people with a global worldview. Do you think more people in the industry, whether media and marketing, whether in tech, could benefit from this? I mean, it seems like one of those things that everyone knows diversity is important, and yet you know we're always coming back to the basic question of what then why is it not happening? Do you think that more people could benefit from that worldview? You know, we we don't specifically look for people who who have you know. First of all, we only invest in teams, so a team is typically two, three, or four people. And um, but often, as I mentioned, um, at least one person uh, was not born in the United States or does have a different background. But it's also, I mean, we're we're looking for the specific uh, background, not necessarily educationally, but experience-wise, both from a family point of view as well as a professional point of view, uh, that will make that person a particularly strong member of the team. Uh, so it could be some, obviously, people who are born in the United States but have diverse backgrounds themselves or different, diverse experiences. Um, so it's not, you know, we, we, we don't want that kind of cookie-cutter. There is no, in fact, cookie-cutter definition of what an entrepreneurial team should look like. It's, uh, it's you know, clearly wide open. Anybody can be an entrepreneur. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. After the break, Eric is looking at the lessons he learned while starting out to inform how he thinks about media today. Stay tuned. But right now, a quick break to tell you about Digiday Plus. Digiday Plus is our premium membership product. Join our community to get a first-hand look at how digital is transforming the world of business. You'll get Digiday Magazine, exclusive research, and invites to member-only events. And it's only $395 a year. Please sign up at digidayplus.com. And for you, our podcast listeners, we have a discount offer. To get 10% off your subscription, enter the code PODCAST at checkout. Now, back to the episode. They, they, you know, they teach entrepreneurial entrepreneurial um, uh, ship 
in schools. And when I look at that curriculum, it, you know, it's nice, uh, it, but it's not rocket science. I mean, you know, the, so I think that the, the entrepreneurial spirit is something that catches on with you, uh, whether it's young because you started a, a business when you were in high school or um, certainly in college, uh, but also sometimes it w awakens later. Uh, you know, we, we've seen uh, entrepreneurs in their 30s and 40s and 50s who, for them, it's the first time business, but something struck them, something in their personal experience um, makes them very clear that there is a lack, that there's a, a product or a service that they have insights on, that they could provide, that the market needs, and usually it comes from, a, it comes from deep inside, it comes from a personal experience, Uh, sometimes long ago, sometimes more recently, sometimes constant. Um, and that's what we're looking for. We're looking for that kind of what is the, the core motivation uh, because that really to us indicates the, the, the dedication, the, um, uh, you know, the so-called passion. But also it's hard to build a business, very, very difficult to, to build a business and a lot of them fail. And so you have to be incredibly resilient. You have to stick to it um, and we'll stick with it. And if it doesn't come from something deep within you, uh, you're going to give up. Um, you're going to say, ah, it's annoying. I'll go do something else. What would you say your core motivation is? What was your spark? Did you have a spark moment in the last 40 years, maybe even earlier? Um, well, you know, I, I grew up with the computer industry, literally, because I, I launched Brazil's first computer magazine. And it was at the time where the computer industry was transitioning from mainframes Uh, to minis, to eventually to PCs, but it was pre-PC, so it was really kind of the mini. And to me, um, the, the technology in, in the form that it was in those days, the fact that more and more companies and organizations were going to be um, able to computerize and to have access to Uh, affordable computing in the form of minis in those days um, was revolutionary. It was going to change the world. It was going to change the way uh, that people thought about business and thought about their customers. And that was very early on. Uh, and then when I became um, you know, the CEO of Ziff Davis and we published all the big computer magazines, PC Magazine, Computer Shopper, PC Week, and so on, um, that was the true revolution. And we, we rode the wave of the PC revolution. And we grew up with Uh, Bill Gates and Michael Dell and um, um, you know a whole bunch of other people who um, were true pioneers and who really I mean Bill Gates believed in the, in a computer in every home. It was it was largely derided uh, as 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 a, as a nonsensical uh, thing to think about. I mean, how could people have possibly have a computer at home and what would they do with it if they had a computer at home? Um, so these were very kind of uh, pioneering, uh, almost evangelical days uh, where, you, where you basically had to make these big statements. But then the industry obviously, um, you know, did what it said it would do. Um, and today, uh, with uh, in this incredible amount of computing power that's available to you as an individual uh, very cheaply, Uh, on your phone or whatever device you want to use and you have access to terabytes and terabytes of computing uh, storage and you know all this computing power is is almost unimaginable uh, and it happened very quickly it happened uh, you know within, within like a 20 year period so the world is just kind of waking up to the fact that um, that we have all this power at our disposal and i believe that we're very much at the beginning 
of what it's going to mean. Tell me about your um, computer magazine in Brazil. What, like, how did you get your start for it? Where did you, where did you get like sort of the first idea for do, making that happen? And how did you actually do it? Um, well, I was the editor-in-chief of the local English language newspaper, which uh, was called the Brazil Herald. And it was a daily newspaper uh, that had a circulation of about 40,000. And we served um, the, the Anglo-Saxon or English-speaking um, expat community. And, now there was, and we felt okay about that because we were essentially serving uh, uh, you know, the uh, expats. And the, what the expats cared about were the, the, the football scores. You know, this was way pre-internet, so there was almost no instantaneous information. Um, and we, we had started the computer section, um, and that computer section were, became very, very popular. Uh, in other words, it's, it's highly read. We expanded it. We started to get some advertising. So what did you write about in the computer section? It was a weekly section, and it was called Computers and Automation. And it was all about um, this move uh, from, you know, kind of big computers that uh, very few had access to, to um, you know, there was um, uh, digital and um, uh, data general and Wang and all these people kind of doing these mini computers. And so it was all about how uh, you could, as, a, as if you were an executive, take advantage of this newly found computing power and who was doing what and which machines were being imported. And your readers were, because they were expats, they, they were, were... All executives. Of, well, not business. all, but a lot of them. Many of them yes, were... They, they ran all of the international businesses. Right. And so they were keenly... And we were really kind of really the only source of that information in Brazil. So um, it dawned on me that, uh, that we should... Separate, it really did not belong uh, in the fold of a daily newspaper, general interest in a newspaper. So um, I wanted to spin it out, and I went to the owner of the Brazil Herald, uh, the, the publisher, and I said, let's spin it out. And he said, well, I have no interest in doing that. Uh, <laughs> so I said, well, I'll tell you what, why, why don't I, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll do it. Um, okay. And uh, just, you know, I'll let me have whatever the assets are, which were very little. Okay. Um, so I found. So he put in some. There was some. Was it backed by the Herald? No, it wasn't backed by the Herald. Although I, I printed it there. Okay. Uh, so I made me a deal, uh, so I could print it a little cheaper, more cheaply. But I found some local backers, um, kind of angel investors. I had no idea that there was such things. How did you pitch them? I'm curious about that. That those first pitches of I want to start a computer magazine. Yeah, right well, now. it was all about how uh, you know Brazil. Brazil even then was already a, a large. I think in those days was maybe the 12th largest economy in the world. Now it's probably about what the ninth or whatever it is. Um, but um, it was all about how. Uh, computing power was going to change the way people do business and it was going to lead to on, all these new services and all these new products and I believed in it and then obviously I convinced them. So we we split out and we started this uh, magazine called uh, Data News. It was, even though it had an English name, it was actually all in Portuguese. Um, and we published um, twice a month. It, it was um, To make it cheaper, it was in a tabloid format, so it was newsprint. Um, but it, 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 was, it, it went really well. It was really well supported. There was good advertisers. I hired uh, people. You know, we, headquarters were in Rio, but I opened a big office in Sao Paulo. And we were chugging along, and then suddenly the military government uh, decided that computers were a matter of national security. I was going to ask, there, was there yeah. censorship? Was there any issue of censorship with covering that? No, because we were considered to be a technical publication and okay. there was no censorship. Uh, but obviously, um, there were policy issues that we had to kind of, you know, walk around 
like on eggshells. But but eventually they uh, they decided that um, computers uh, were a matter of national security and had to be manufactured in Brazil, and that if you wanted to import computers, you had to have a license. Um, and suddenly, all of my, all my, pretty much all of my advertising dried out because nobody knew what their future was going to look like. So, um, so I ran out of, uh, I ran out of uh, monetary support, and my investors uh, did not want to put any more money in it because also they didn't know. So I sold the business uh, to uh, IDG. Um, so it's Patrick McGovern um, who passed away a few years ago. And, and Pat was a true pioneer in, in kind of the me, compu- uh, technology media. So he was uh, the founder of Computer World, he was also the founder of IDC. And he had Computer Worlds already then. He had Computer Worlds in many, many, many countries, and he didn't have one in Brazil. So I, I, I proposed to him that, he, that I uh, sell him um, my, my publication and that I stay on and, um, and start his businesses uh, throughout Latin America. So that's what we did. I, he bought the, the business. Um, and then we proceeded, then we got to learn how to live with the rules and the advertisers came back over time and everything was okay. But we also launched um, magazines and uh, trade shows because we, we also had market research and trade shows. We also launched those in Argentina and Venezuela and um, licensed uh, our name in Chile and other places. So we had Mexico and so we had this, this whole business which was doing great uh, in Latin America. Then the military government was replaced by uh, the first democratic government in many years, which was fantastic, uh, except that security uh, broke down. And, um, uh, and it, it was a, there was a big era of kidnappings. If you were a businessman, um, you, you were always under threat of being robbed and mugged and all these things. And my, my, I had a family and my daughter was born uh, in, in Brazil, and I decided that I didn't want to stay, uh, even though I had lived there for 15 years, had many friends, it was a great place to be. So I decided to move to the United States, and I told IDG that I would love to continue working with them if they had something for me to do, otherwise I would just move and do something else. And they had a very early microcomputer magazine based in Menlo Park in California uh, called InfoWorld. And InfoWorld had... Um, was initially conceived as a consumer magazine. So they were kind of early to think that um, the PCs were going to be personal machines. Um, but as it turns out, um, there was um, a rival magazine called PC Week uh, from Ziv Davis, which took the opposite approach, that, that uh, personal computers were going to become business machines. And that's where all the money was going to be. And it turns out to be actually correct in the, in the early days. Uh, so uh, Pat wanted me to take over InfoWorld and move it from a consumer to a controlled circ uh, kind of uh, business publication. Um, and we, we did that quite successfully. We were never as big uh, as PC Week, but the, the, the magazine grew uh, quite a bit. And you know, um, uh, So I stayed there for uh, three years uh, and had a great time. Before I let you go, I wanted to play a little rapid fire game with you. Do you feel ready? Sure. You're ready. If you were to write a book about your life, what would it be called? Uh, keep your eyes open. What is the best advice you ever got? I think the best advice I ever got was from Bill Ziff, which, and who, who was truly one of the 
monster publishers of, of his generation, if not the monster publisher of, of his generation. And and his his advice was um, put it out there. Content um, appeals and repeals. And what he meant by that is that um, do not try to adapt your content to the audience. Let the audience adapt themselves to your content. And that, then you get yourself into a true audience. What is your favorite advice that you like to give people? Teamwork. Uh, that you, nobody's an island. Um, you can only accomplish things in a team. And be clear as to who is on your team and, and serve them. You have to, as a leader of the team, you have to serve them. What is the biggest threat to the marketing industry right now? A commodity uh, is the biggest threat. Um, commodity, which already has made huge inroads with programmatic uh, and other forms of uh, utilization of data. Um, this anonymity, uh, this, this, this idea that, there's, that you can do everything through data is, is a big threat to, uh, to marketing. What is your favorite app on your phone? Um, probably Twitter. And last one, what is one goal for the next year that you want to achieve? Well, you know, we're, we're the, probably the most active early stage VCs uh, in New York who, who basically mostly invest in New York. Most of our companies are based in New York and we want to continue that. We believe that uh, there might be an opportunity for a later stage as well. That's Eric Hippo, Managing Partner at Lara Hippo Ventures. Thank you for listening. And our producer is Aditi Sangal. If you liked our show, please subscribe. We're on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review and rate the show or just tweet at us. I'm your host, Shereen Patek. See you next week.